Thanks for joining us at Faith Bible Chapel. We hope the message you're about to hear encourages your day and brings you closer to Jesus. If you'd like to join us for service, find a small group, or simply find out more about the church, stop by our website at www.faith.church. So today we're going to take a a step backwards. We're going to go a little bit higher view. We're going to take an aerial view of the Gospel of Mark because the Gospel of Mark is one of the most powerful books in the entire Bible. The Gospel of Mark is in, uh, a, a, an explanation and a revelation of Jesus in a way that reveals who the Father is. For we find in Jesus who our Father God is. If you really want to know who God the Father is, look to Jesus. And that's what Mark is all about. When we read scriptures, it's important and helpful to understand a few questions about the book that you're reading. So whenever you look through whatever book you want to read, it's always good to ask a couple questions. First, duh, who was the author? Who wrote it? Uh, What was the audience the author was writing for? And then what was the author's message? What was the point of what he was trying to teach? So in our aerial view of the gospel today, we're going to take a look at who wrote the gospel of Mark. Now, Mark did not identify himself as the author of the gospel that we call Mark, but we have the testimony of an earlier Christian writer called Papias, who wrote that Mark collected the teachings and and, and the recollections of Peter and he wrote them down. However, we do see Mark in the Scriptures throughout various places. Mark was not a disciple of Jesus, but he was most likely the son of one of uh, Jesus' disciples. Mary or Miriam in the Bible is mentioned, and thus we we believe, and scholars believe that Mark was probably a young man uh, during the time that Jesus walked the earth. In Mark 14, it says that a certain, during Jesus' arrest, we have this definition of of Mark, Then it says, a certain man followed him, young man followed him, having a linen cloth around his naked body. And when the young man laid hold of him after they'd arrested Jesus, he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now, that's an odd little piece of scriptural trivia, right? Well, it's only mentioned in Mark. And so we always think that it's kind of Mark kind of tattling on himself about this is what his experience was in this deal. In in Acts 12 too, it says that when... um, They had considered some things. They came to the house of Mary and the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, was gathered together praying. So we see John Mark or John, the son of Mary in the book of Acts. And in Colossians 4.10, it says that Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. So we find that Mark and Barnabas had a relationship together. And he ultimately became a member of Barnabas and Paul's first missionary journey in Acts 13. They said that they went, when they arrived in Salamis, they had preached the Word of God, Paul and Barnabas, in the synagogues, and they also had John as their assistant. And then in Acts 13, 13, it says, when, the, when Paul and his party set sail per, for Paphos, they came to Pergia and Pamphylia, and departing from there, they returned to Jerusalem. Mark, de, John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So we see that John started, started, Mark started with them, and then he left early in their missionary journey which then led ultimately to the, 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 the separation between Barnabas and Paul. In Acts 15, after Barnabas and Paul had come back to Jerusalem and given an account of all the missionary stuff that they'd been doing and all the activities that happened, the advancement of the gospel, the miracles that were going on, we see that Barnabas in, in Acts 15 says, Barnabas was determined to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take him because he'd been the one who departed from them in Pamphylia. And then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark, sailed to Cyprus, and Paul took Titus and moved forward. So those, there's the scriptures where we see who Mark is. 
He was a young man who witnessed some of the actions and some of the teachings of Jesus, but he was not a disciple of Jesus. He was an associate of Paul because he was Barnabas's cousin. And so he knew the gospel, he hung around the gospel, and other uh, non-biblical writings say that Mark was probably a, an assistant to Peter. And so at the end of, towards the end of Peter's life, the believers at the time began to say to Peter, hey, dude, we need what you know. We want to hear your story. We want to hear what Jesus did and stuff. And so Peter began to give his recollection and Mark began to write them down. And so we see that who did he write it for? Who did Mark write the gospel for? Mark wrote the life of the account of Jesus so that Peter's eyewitness would not be lost. He wrote the book to a Gentile audience. So actually, the Gospel of Mark is one of the greatest books that you can give to a new believer or non-believer. Because the Gospel of Mark is a powerfully packed book, which we'll talk about in a little bit of detail later. But it was the, it, the audience was for non-believers because Mark and Peter wanted the non-believers or the Gentile world to know who Jesus was, what he taught, and what he did. And so in P Mark's Gospel, we see Peter He's not in, in the best light. A lot of the negative things about Peter show up in Mark. He was impetuous. He was uh, all over the map. He was up. He was down. He was in. He was out. We see in Mark, he describes Peter's denial of Jesus, which then Luke and Matthew picked up and put in their gospel. But we don't see in Mark Peter's restoration that we see in John. He kind of left it out because Peter left it out. And so we don't see that. The Gospels are also written in a style that is unique at the times, very unique for the times. The Gospels are not biographies. So when you're reading the Scriptures and, and the Gospels and you're trying to reconcile John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, trying to say, well, they don't match and the criticism is, well, they're, they're contradictory. That's because they're not a biography. What they really are is basically they are news accounts of the day. Kind of think of them as reading a newspaper. What's going on in there? Here are the facts. Here are the events, here's what Jesus did, here's what Jesus said. You decide what you want to do with it. It's up to you to decide what you're going to do with what Mark has to say. Because Mark is presenting a gospel for you to consider that the acts that Jesus is doing, the teachings that he's giving, are worthy of consideration for the claims that he is making. And so the book of Mark can be broken up into three different acts. The first one is the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. This phase includes what they call the popularity, the rising of Jesus with his popularity. There's a lot of miracles that happen. There's a lot of great stuff. The crowds begin to follow. The, the crowds begin to swell. And then in Acts 2, the journey, Mark has a lot of journeys from one place to another place. There's a lot of discussions along the way and on the road. They did this. And on the road this to this, Jesus did this. And along this way, Jesus did that. And so there's a, a lot of discussion about what was happening as they were moving from one place to another. And then finally, the third act is the last week of Jesus' life in Jerusalem. This phase includes the spectacular entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem being hailed as the conquering Messiah King. But it concludes with the suffering of Jesus crucified on a cross, buried, and finally rising from the dead. So the book of Mark opens up with the only statement that Mark makes of his personal viewpoint. Mark 1 says, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the only time we hear what Mark thinks. Mark is stating that the good news is all about Jesus, who is both Christ or Messiah and God. Making that emphatic statement right at the very beginning, this is where Mark's coming from. 
He says, doesn't he says that he doesn't believe it, he states it as a fact that Jesus is both God and the Messiah, the Son of God, God made man. That's who Jesus is. So the book of Mark is what we call the action picture of the Gospels. I mean, it is a packed zoom. If you could go from one scene to another, and if I had the, like the, the great video things to be able to say this, I would go and then because that's what happens in Mark. It just goes boom, 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 here to here to here. Immediately, the word immediately is used 36 times in 15 chapters. Immediately, immediately. He takes us on a fast-paced journey of the actions of Jesus, and Mark's gospel is absolutely the action picture. Peter was obviously more concerned about what Jesus did and said as we move immediately from one event to another. And so chapter 1 opens up. Chapter 1, verse Mark, Mark 1, 9 says, And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan, and immediately, here he come, boom, immediately, the, he was baptized, immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Here Jesus is being water baptized, and he's always being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is being empowered for ministry right here. And then the, gospel, the first chapter, I mean, we're talking the first chapter, buckle your seats, baby, because here it comes. We go right on quickly. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Boom. Then he calls his disciples, Peter, John, come, come, come. And then he gives his first sermon in, in Capernaum. And then this demon guy yelps out. Some church member goes, I know who you are. And Jesus says, shut up and come out. And then he goes home and has, heals Peter's mother-in-law because he wants lunch. And she doesn't have enough energy to feed lunch, so he heals her so she can make lunch. And then that night, all the people come knocking at the door. Hey, 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 Jesus, we heard you healed Peter's mother-in-law. Can you heal me too? And so he spends the night healing people, casting out demons. And then the next morning, he wakes up early. The disciples find, Jesus, where are you? And he's gone. Where is he? He's out by himself, praying, seeking the Father's guidance, seeking the Father's fellowship. And then he says to them, come on, boys, let's go to the next towns. I've got many to preach there also because for this purpose I have come forth. And that's all in chapter 1. Wow. So they begin to respond with the question that we're going to deal with today. The response is, who is he? Who is this man? Who, who do you think he is? Jimmy Christmas, what's going on here? Is that right, Jimmy Christmas? Yeah. Jesus came to demonstrate that he is the saving Messiah who has all authority in heaven and earth. He teaches with an authority that no one has ever heard. They are amazed at the authority of his teaching. They're amazed. You ever sat in a sermon like with Pastor Jason and he's talking to you and you turn around and you look at everybody else here and go, I'm so glad you're here for me because the anointing of God is upon the message of the word of God. And Jesus was much more powerful than that. The message, the word of God, they were just enthralled with the life-givingness freedom of his message. Jesus heals the sick. He brings sight to the blind. He delivers people from devils. What is going on here? Mark is telling you that you've got to consider all this man claim who Jesus is because all these things he's doing. He's not saying, I think he did this. He's saying, these things happened. Deal with it. Deal with it. Just who is Jesus? 
Jesus requires the, the religious leaders to figure out who he is. Jesus forgives sin. Jesus heals people on the Sabbath. He confronts the religious leaders' hypocrisies. He provokes them to confusion, anger, opposition, and ultimately to murder because he's here for a purpose. Who is this Jesus? Mark 2, 7 says, the Pharisees were complaining, who does this man think he is that he can forgive sins but God alone? Mark 3, 1 says, he entered the synagogue and there was a man who was withered hand. And so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him. And then the scribes came to Jerusalem, Mark 3, it says, and he has Beelzebub. He's by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. Pastor Jason talked about how vile of an accusation this was from them. Just absolutely vile. Mark 7 says, the Pharisee says, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Jesus' reply to them was, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. I mean, how do you influence and influence people? You call them hypocrites, right? So he said, well did Isaiah talk about you? These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me. And then finally in Mark 14, It says, during the Passover week, after two days, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. His opposition had only one purpose, to destroy his word, his influence, and ultimately his life, because they wanted to snuff him out, which is really a type of the devil. The devil wants to ruin your word, your reputation, and ultimately to take you out. But... Jesus. Jesus also, though, requires his followers to work out just who they think he is. He confuses his disciples with his teachings. What does he mean by these stories or these parables? His actions portray great power and authority, yet he doesn't take the steps necessary to become the conquering Messiah that they all believe them to be. His disciples witness and become participants in the ministry and the miraculous ministry of Jesus. Mark 3.13 says that he went up to mountain and he called to them those he himself wanted and they came to him. And then he appointed the 12 that they might be with him and then he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. One of the great things about this little passage of who Jesus is, is this is who he is today. And you are the ones that he's called out of the world. You are the one he has said, I want you to be with me. You're the ones that he wants to anoint with power and authority to heal sicknesses, to cast out devils, to see the kingdom of God advance. It is your witness that he's looking for. He wants to magnify who he is in your life. He wants you to decide who is he in your life and who are you in his life. And he wants to anoint you with the power of the Holy Spirit to go out and change the world that he's placed you in. Started here and it continues on going on for, with, with the rest of the disciples. In Mark 4, it talks about with many parables, he spoke to them as they were able to hear it. And without a parable, he didn't speak to them. But at the end, the end of the night, he'd speak a parable. Disciples would say, what were you talking about? And he'd say, okay, well, here's what I was talking about. And he explained it to them. And then one day he said, let us go to the other side of the river, of of the lake. And a great windstorm arose. The waves beat into the boat. It was already filling. We know the story. He was in a stern, asleep on a pillow. They got upset. Teacher, don't you care? How many times have you ever said it? Jesus, don't you care? And he's going. 
And so he got up, rebuked the wind, and said, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? For they had feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know, I, we, we live in a video age, and if I could do these videos that I have in my head, they'd be great. Because I can see Jesus sound asleep, sawing logs, and then they say, Jesus, get up and save us. He goes, oh, oh, ay, ay, ay. Okay, be quiet. I mean, you know, when we're around, and you know, we got wind here, right? It blows, and, but it kind of That's not what happened. It immediately stopped. Whoa, who is this guy that the wind and the river, the winds, the winds and the rain obey him? And yet Jesus refuses to promote himself, while at the same time he relieves people from their suffering. Jesus raises people from the dead. He heals lepers. He tells the lepers, heal, don't tell anybody, just be quiet, just go free, be free. He feeds over 5,000 people with two fish and, uh, five fish and two loaves. He walks on water. He frequently confronts the fe- their fears and tells them, just okay, don't be afraid. What do you mean, don't be afraid? Ay, ay, ay. Don't be afraid. Have no fear. Be with me. And then they say to them, how can all this, ha- how can you have such a power and authority, and yet you don't march on Jerusalem and remove the Rom- 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 Romans and declare your kingship? Because Mark is setting up the point that Jesus is like no other teacher, no other prophet that has ever walked the earth. He has come for one specific purpose, and while at the same time demonstrating all of us that there is a way of victory over self, sin, and the devil. The disciples are even found arguing who will be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. Often you see through the book of Mark and other gospels, they were arguing along the way, who would be the greatest? Well, I'm going to be the greatest. I can hear this. I'm going to be the greatest. Peace. Well, I'm going to be the greatest because I walked on water. And then the rest of them go, oh, yeah, 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 but you started drowning anyway. What do you think you are? And Jesus is going, son, sons, brothers, listen. Mark 10, 4, 45 says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom to many. Jesus confronts their prejudiced misconception of who he is. And then Jesus encounters so much confusion that Mark is setting each of us to deal with this question, who do they say I am? And so we come to the pivotal part of Mark's gospel. Mark 8, Jesus and his disciples went to the towns of Caesarea and Philippi. And on the road, along the way, he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets. And so then he said to them, but who do you say I am? Peter then answered him and says, well, you are the Christ. And then he strictly warned them that they should not know one about them. Who do men say that I am? Popular opinion was all over the map. John the Baptist, Elijah, the prophets raised from the dead. We got to remember that in this time of the, of the, of, of the culture, of the, at the time of the, of the season, there had not been a prophet arise in Israel for over 400 years. John the Baptist was the first one in 400 years to begin declaring that God was coming. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. 
And then Herod had him killed. So they were looking for something, some savior, some conquering Messiah to set them free. And so yet Jesus asks the question, but who do you say that I am? And that's the question we all want to answer. We all need to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you have a biblical, he said to them, do you have a biblical understanding of who I am to the disciples? Do you really know who I am? You think you know who I am? I don't think you know who I am. Or have you made up your own definition of who you think I am? Are you using popular opinion to consider who do you think I might be? Same question for us today. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus someone you know? Do you know, who do you say Jesus is? Or do you have a popular opinion of Jesus that he's something this or something that? And Mark is presenting the gospel to say, here is Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the beginning of the good news. So in Mark 8, 31, it says that after this declaration, Peter, Jesus begins to give a clarity of this. He says to them, he began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise from the dead. And so Peter took him aside, and, and so Peter began to rebuke him openly, and then no, Jesus spoke this word openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And when Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. If you are mindful of the things of God, not the thing, you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. And when he had called his disciples to himself, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him decide it, d- deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus, right here, is setting aside the conquering Messiah Savior. He's setting aside the understanding of who this conquering Messiah Savior is for the suffering Savior Messiah of Isaiah 53. He is saying, this time the Messiah has come to die. All who follows this Savior, the suffering Savior, must be willing to die. Come and die is at the heart of the good news. Come and die. To be a member of the kingdom of God, we all have to be prepared to give up our own life, to live the life that God has intended for all of us to live from the beginning of all creation. A life filled with the fruits of surrender, a life filled with victory over self, sin, and over all the power of the devil comes out of dying to self, dying to our own will, dying with Jesus, and being raised to a new life, to be born again into the kingdom of God. And to confirm this calling, we find Jesus bringing his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, to the mountain of God to witness the confirmation of Jesus' mission and position with the Father, a mission of sacrifice in the position of God's favor. Mark 9 says, after six days, after this rebuke of Peter publicly, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up to the high mountain apart, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launder on earth can lighten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus, and a cloud came upon them, overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, hear him. Caesarea Philippi is found at the foot of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in Israel. In the winter, this mountain is covered in snow, 
Out of this mountain flows the headwaters of the Jordan River. Because of the water that flows from this mountain, pagans called this after their god Pan. Pan was known as a fertility god who brought life out of the depths of the earth, or hell. Thus, pagans called this mountain the gates of hell. And I think we have a picture of it. Our own Scott Wygant took this picture. Isn't that beautiful? Looking down the valley, one of the highest peaks in all of Israel. I'm told it's cold up there, and it snows up there. they got a ski area up there now. But it's on this mountain that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. It is on this mountain that the pagans called the gates of hell are in this mountain. Because out of the gates of hell flew, flowed the, the, the rivers, the headwaters of the Jordan. Life came out of that. It was their fertility god. And so what do pagans do? Pagans do what pagans do. They, created, they, 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 they participated in all sorts of vile acts, perverted acts, in order to call forth their pagan god, to bring forth the gates of hell, to bring life out of the gates of hell. And so Jesus goes up in this mountain, and on, many, on this mountain, many scholars say that this was the mountain. Now, there's some controversy whether it's this mountain or some of the other ones, but many scholars say that it was Mount Hermon that Jesus went up to, and he was transfigured. The word transformed, he was transformed in front of them. He was transfigured before them. The root word for that is transformed. The Greek word for transformed is metamorpho. Metamor- Everybody say metamorpho. One more time, metamorpho. Good, now you can all go home and say, I got a Greek lesson today in church. Good for you. Metamorpho. It literally means to change form. We get the word metamorphosis from this. Just as a caterpillar changes form from a caterpillar into a butterfly, Jesus changed form. The body of Jesus is transformed into the glory that he had before he took on flesh. Jesus was always this. When he took on flesh, he, did, he gave up his equality with God, but he did not give up his nature as God. He always had this glory, but he had covered it in flesh. And on this mountain, this thing came shining forth in such a shocking way that it was completely overwhelming. For at this mountain, Jesus begins to declare and glor- show his glory for all the world to see. And Mark is testifying that this is Jesus who do you think he is? Who do you say he is? This Jesus transformed in the glory of God. Who do you say he is? And so he has this conversation with Moses and Elijah. Peter wakes up from a stupor, again, sleeping on the job, going, what is going Look at that. And Moses and Elijah are talking to them. And what are they talking about? They're talking about his coming death. And on this mountain, it says that Jesus chose to reveal his glorious nature, and it was on this mountain that the gates of hell would not prevail. Matthew 16, 18 says, when, Jesus, when Peter had made his declaration that Jesus was the Christ, he said to them, you are Peter, you're a small rock, but upon this big rock, so it, basically the Greeks in that is, Peter, you are a pebble, you are a pebble, you are solid, but you're still just a pebble, but upon this rock of revelation that I am the Messiah, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I love this symbolism. I love the stuff that Jesus does. When you get all this put together, it's just amazing how it all comes together. So what did Jesus say? He had told Peter that the gates of hell will not prevail against this revelation. So what does he do? He goes up to the mountain that the world called the gates of hell. 
and he reveals his glory. He reveals his glory and power and might. The God nature of Jesus shines through his flesh, and Peter is absolutely unable unable to, to accurately describe what he sees. On this mountain, we see Moses and Elijah, who, why Moses and Elijah? A lot of theories, a lot of desires, a lot of thought behind it. Here's one. What two other great prophets had conversations with God on the top of the mountain? Moses did. Elijah did. Remember the still small voice with Elijah? God was having a conversation. Jesus was having a conversation with the other two men that had had mountaintop experiences with God. Mountaintop experiences with the revelation of God. Mountaintop experiences with the voice and nature of God. And what were they talking about? They were talking about Jesus' soon suffering and death and resurrection. They were talking about what was coming down the road. They were talking about the great sacrifice that he was about ready to make. Because the sacrifice he was going to make was going to set them free. That's what they were talking about. And Peter was so overwhelmed, he begins to talk about some kind of religious thing. Let's do this and let's do that. And all of a sudden, out of the, out of the sky, this booming voice comes forth. This is my, bo-. you know, if I had that deep, like, dark voice, like, Pastor Jason's got the voice, you know. This is my beloved son. Hear him. I don't, I, why is God's voice deep? I don't know. It's deep, right? Y'all agree his voice is deep? Yeah? No? It's not squeaky, I can tell you that. (laughs) But this big voice comes out and God says, this is my beloved son, hear him. Listen to what he says. Just who is this Jesus? We have, Mark continues from the entire gospel is all built around who is Jesus? Who does the world say he is? Who do you say he is? Who is this Jesus? What about all these claims? As you read through the book, you have to determine, what, do you believe it? Do you believe this testimony? Or do you believe it's just a story? Do you believe this might be real? Or are you just going to dismiss it as religious hoo-ha-ha? What are you going to do with the testimony that Mark has that he wrote down that Peter de- described of the life, the times, the actions, the teachings of Jesus? Just who is this Jesus? What the gospel says is that he's a miracle worker. He is declared God's beloved son. He's the Messiah. He's the savior of the world. And how does this work into our understanding of Jesus? How do you deal with this when you walk through and read this book? Prayerfully read over it. Read it. Spend some time here in the next couple weeks reading through the gospel and ask the Holy Spirit, show me, what do I need to know out of this? What would you have me learn? How is it that I can learn about Jesus? What further revelation do you have for me to know who Jesus is? And then we find the incredible, from this point forward, the Gospel of Mark takes a fast pace. It goes, takes the highest mountain up in North Jerusalem, and he goes up, I mean, uh, on Mount Hermon, the highest mountain on uh, Mount Hermon, and then they go up to Jerusalem. Now, they're always talking about going up to Jerusalem, right? But practically, it's down. So they got to go down from the mountain, and the gospel of Mark immediately sends him into Jerusalem. He takes us on a speed journey to Jerusalem, and the first thing we find out going on in Jerusalem is Jesus makes this incredible triumphant entry. He's on a donkey, this 
the, 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 the town erupts that this conquering Messiah is coming to save us. Hallelujah. Hosanna to the Son of God. Hosanna, come save us. Save us. Save us. And they're all saying, save us from the Romans. So what does Jesus do? He comes into the city on his triumphant entry, and instead of making a turn to the praetorium where the Roman government is, he turns and makes a move to, to the temple. Because Jesus did not come to make a political statement. Jesus came to deal with the real issue of the day, sin, our rebellion, the things that keep us separated from God. He was going to deal with that first and foremost. And when you deal with that first and foremost, then you can deal with the other later. When you get right with God, when you get right in your own heart, in your own life, and you're walking in righteousness, and you're walking in relationship with God, he will elevate you into a position of influence in your society and our society that will have great impact for others. So if you want to make a political statement, make a spiritual statement first. Get right with Jesus. Understand who he is. Make the declaration of who he is in your life, and then let the Spirit of God train you and transform you into the image and likeness of Jesus, and then go do what he's equipped you to do, what he's enthused you to do, with the things that you said, I'm going to do that. I want to do that. I just, why do you want to do that? Because I just want to. It's what I want to do. It's something I want to do. I just, I don't know why. I just want to do that. And that's what Jesus did. But what he did come to do that day, he went triumphantly into Jerusalem to confront the religious hypocrisy of the day. Jesus is always dealing with the heart of the matter before he deals with the circumstances of the day. Where are we with him? How are we with him? What's going on with us? How are we utilizing what we have with Jesus? That's what he's doing. That's the most important thing. Jesus then spends the next week teaching about our relationships with one another, teaching about our relationships with God, teachings about the end of the age. Love God. Love one another. Forgive one another as God has forgiven you. Serve one another as Jesus has served you. Remember, he said, I have come to, be, to serve, not be served. Be like Jesus. Who is Jesus? What are you going to do with that question? Who is Jesus? Jesus also begins to say, watch for the end of the age to come. Be aware of the signs of the times. But don't let it preclude you from the actions of love. Don't let your preoccupation with the returning of, of the Messiah, the conquering Messiah, don't let that distract you from making an impact in the lives of your neighbor today. Or how about just the, the life of your spouse or your children or those that are close to you? Make a difference in their life. Yield, love, honor, support. Speak life, not death. Encourage. Lift them up. Don't tear them down. Give a word of, of exhortation. Give a word of, of comfort. Give a word of healing. Be like me. Let them come to you and find life in your life, in your words, in your actions. Because that's the most important thing. Yes, Jesus is coming again. Yay, praise the Lord. Wouldn't it be cool if all of a sudden right now, we just exited here. Pastor Jason comes back. Well, I guess he'd probably go with us. Yeah, let's say that. Yeah, I'm sure he would. In fact, I'm sure he would come with us. But wouldn't it be cool? I'm up for it. Anybody else up for it? Let's do it. Come on, Jesus. But until he does, occupy. 
right? Occupy. Jesus encounters uh, confrontations with the religious leaders of the day, and they won't lift a finger to help the people with their struggles. Religious people really love to give you rules and regulations and no help. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do, right? Don't do that. Well, that doesn't help because maybe that girl that chooses is the one for you. I don't know. God knows. But don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew. What does that have to do with holiness and righteousness unless the Spirit of God says to you, don't smoke, don't drink, and don't chew, and don't go with girls that do? I mean, if that's what God says, sure. But not some religious rule like, okay, you got to wear long dress, ladies and guys. You got to wear white shirts and you got to wear a tie and all that kind of stuff. Religion is a bunch of rules. Um, Doug Nukem has taught me this. He says, religion is easy and people like religion because then they have to just follow the rule. Relationships are hard. Anybody have a spouse can say that? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Relationships are hard. They're hard. Religion is easy. And so Jesus came to confront the religion of the day because they were putting on rule after rule after rule. And they weren't lifting a finger to help them. And so then Jesus comes to establish a new covenant and a type and a shadow that the Exodus was, was experienced for. The Last Supper is in, is, a symbol, is in symbolism of the deliverance of the children of Israel from bondage. So we're all familiar with that story. Remember, God called them to get a lamb. You investigate the lamb. You put the lamb in your house for seven days, I think it was, and you investigate, make sure the lamb's pure and spotless. And then on the seventh day, they were supposed to kill it, put the blood on the doorpost. So when the death came, came by, they would overshadow or over, you know, pass over the, that home and not kill the firstborn. So what was that all about? Because what Jesus was saying is, I have come to set the captives free. He literally did that for the children of Israel. And at the Last Supper, Jesus comes and says, this is what the Savior has come to do. I have come to give you a new covenant, a new covenant in the blood of Jesus. I'm going to free you from all bondages of sin, self, and death, and all the oppression of the devil. I have come to give you a new covenant. I have... I have, not, I have established a new covenant. The old covenant is good to watch and study and learn, but the new one is here. Replace it with the new covenant. And so the fulfillment of Jesus' mission was that Mark establishes right here and there that all of these actions that di- Jesus demonstrated were meant to confirm that Jesus' mission was to die on a cross for the salvation of all mankind. The number one reason Jesus came was to die on a cross. And the reason he died on a cross, because he was willing and able and wanting to take the wrath of God that we deserved on himself so we could step into the relationship with God that Jesus already had. Jesus has come to set the captive free. He has come to die. And then to rise from the dead that would usher in a brand new kingdom. So the religious leaders of the day condemned Jesus for blasphemy. Mark 14, 61 says, hey, Joel, if you're there, come on out. And the high priest said to them, are you the, so they arrest Jesus. All of a sudden he's arrested. They arrest Jesus. And he says that the high priest are accusing him, trying to figure out all sorts of things, conflicting testimony. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the blessed. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. 
and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And so the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further witness do we need? We've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him, deserving of death. You understand that Jesus is innocent of blasphemy. Why is he innocent of blasphemy? (laughs) Because what he is saying is true. He is the Messiah. They said, tell me plainly, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Yes, I am. Yes, he is. That was the truth. But the occupied Jewish leaders could not put Jesus to death because they'd lost that due to their own sin and, and, and rebellion. They'd lost it to the rule of the Romans. Therefore, they had to make up a lie in order to accomplish their murder. They told Pilate that Jesus was claiming to be king. And that claim, a king claim, was treason. And treason is punishable by death. So they took him to Pilate. And the chief priest, Mark 15, says, they held a consultation with the elders. They bound him, led him away to Pilate. And Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, it is as you say. Yes, I am. It wasn't treason. It was true. And so what did Pilate do? Pilate delivered Jesus up to the, to the Jewish leaders. He had him scourged first and then crucified. In Mark 15, it says that they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of skull. We're all familiar with this, or we should be. And they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots for them to, to determine what every man should take. And now at the third hour, they crucified him, and the inscription of the accusers was written, King of the Jews. So the Roman government agreed that Jesus was the King of the Jews. And then while on the cross, Jesus felt, he come, Jesus felt what we all feel when we come under incredible trial. He felt abandoned. And he expressed that confusion and abandonment while he was on the cross. Jesus in 1534 said at the ninth hour, he'd gotten crucified, nailed at a third. The ninth hour, six hours later, Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Personal conviction, Jim Marsh personal conviction. I don't believe God forsook forsook him. I think there's plenty of scriptures to say that God will never abandon you, he'll never leave you. I know there's some teaching that says that he can't look on sin and God turned away and Jesus. No, I think this was pure human Jesus. How many times have you under severe stress and trial felt abandoned by God? And yet, what is the truth? The truth of the matter, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Because his love for you is secured forever in the blood of Jesus. Yet Jesus on the cross is able to express everything that we go through. The Bible says he was tempted in all ways like us, yet without sin. And therefore, because of that, we have access to the throne of God's grace. We can come boldly to God's throne of grace and find help, find mercy and help in our time of need. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he, Mark 15, 37 says, he cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And then an incredible thing happened. The veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. That veil 
was a hand's thick. It was a man's hand thickness. It was huge. It was ripped from the top to the bottom, this way. The curtain that had separated God from man had finally been forever torn down. That curtain, the Holy of Holies, separating the, the, the mercy seat of God, the presence of God from mankind. The Jewish traditional, the, the leaders, the teaching of the day was that only one time a year could a high priest enter into that and make sacrifice that would cover the sins of man for one year. And only one man could enter that. Anyone else who tried would be killed immediately. But that curtain that separated God from man was ripped from the top to the bottom because the wrath of God had been atoned for. Jesus had declared, it is finished. God's wrath has been paid for. God's anger towards anyone who has sinned is over. My blood has cleansed them from all unrighteousness. The pathway to God is open forever. And this symbolism cannot be overstated. It just can't be overstated. For centuries, this curtain had separated man from God. And Jesus rips it down. Jesus rips it down. And now forever, for all eternity, all of us have access to the presence of God through the cross of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus. You can plead the blood at any time. You can plead the cross at any time. It is yours to have, to access. And then Mark reveals one of the most incredible statements, I think, in all the Gospels. Mark 15, 39 said, So when the centurion who stood opposite saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Mark, the foundation of Luke and Matthew, Mark, the first gospel that was written. It's not the first in our order, but it's the first gospel that was written. Mark declares that the first person on earth to declare that Jesus is, was the Son of God was a Gentile. And not only was he a Gentile, he was someone who could be accused of being complicit in the murder of Jesus. I think that's a big deal. By dying on the cross and rising from the dead, Jesus has restored all of mankind's opportunity to have a relationship and fellowship with God. God created you in his image and likeness so that you might have fellowship with him. Sin came in and separated us from that fellowship. Jesus came in, covered the sin, took away the wrath of God, and restored fellowship with God. Mark's gospel is all about that. And a Gentile gets to declare first, which I think is probably a symbolism of everyone gets to come in. Everyone. No one is excluded from the blood of Jesus. It doesn't matter your background, your ethnicity, your gender, your political affiliation, where you come from, what you've been raised in, how you're, what, whatever happened. None of that excludes you from Jesus. So we come to the question of the day. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he a figure of history? Is he a good man, a good religious leader? 
Is he far away from you when you consider that question? Is he who he's declared himself to be? What about all of this that Mark has given us? What are you going to do with this testimony of all the things that Jesus did and said? Are you going to believe it or are you going to dismiss it? Who is Jesus? Who is he to you? The Gospel of Mark ends pretty much abruptly right here at the cro- as, as he's raised from the dead. It says that the women came to the tomb and they were fearful when the angels declared that Jesus had risen from the dead. There's some manuscripts that were things some scholars say were added on, but it really does abruptly end with the idea that what are you going to do with Jesus? How are you going to deal with this question? Who is Jesus to you? We hope you enjoyed the message. If you'd like to watch a service live online, you can join us every Sunday at 9 and 1045 a.m. at live.faith.church. For everything else, check our website at www.faith.church.